All right, flip to Colossians chapter 3. We only have a couple more weeks of Colossians. uh, And then our last Sunday, Lord willing, here, um, I'm going to do a state of the church message. um, And then, Lord willing, after that, when we make our transition to Warrington, uh, the community center there, I'm going to do a series on Genesis 1 through 11. So I'm pretty excited about that. I've been wanting to do that for quite a while, but that'll just give you a little bit of an idea of where we're, we're heading with this. But Colossians 3, tonight we're looking at household rules from verses 18 and into chapter 4, verse 1. So uh, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word as we pay close attention to Spirit-inspired Scripture. Colossians 3, verse 18, these are the words of God. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but with integrity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Serve the Lord Christ. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of wrong, the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, show to your slaves what is right and fair, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Our gracious Holy Father and God of all mercy, you promised never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change. Then may we respond to your gracious promises and be faithful and, and with faithful and obedient lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray, and amen. You can be seated. Well, as we near the end of our study of Paul's letter to the Colossians, a couple more weeks and we'll wrap this up, I want to make sure that we try to hold the entire letter together in our minds. Letters were written by Paul, or at least in some cases they were dictated by Paul and perhaps written by another like Timothy and each of which were under a special revelatory inspiration by the Holy Spirit, and they would have been read, once they were received by the Christians, they would have been read in their entirety in the various churches all in one sitting. Hey, look, Paul sent a letter. Let's read it. Let's get everybody together, read the whole thing. In some cases, it took a few minutes. In some cases, like Romans, it would have taken a little bit longer. And uh, some of these churches uh, met in homes because that's all they had available to them at the time. No doubt in uh, the church in Colossae had a few Christian households, and those households would have welcomed Epaphras and Tychicus and Luke and and the rest of the apostolic mission team. And we know from chapter 4, verse 15, that Nympa had a church in her house. Paul even mentions her there for us. And it would be a few years before the various ecclesias took over the pagan temples and turned them into basilicas, these outposts of kingdom work. I remember seeing some of those when I was in Rome uh, back in, I think it was in 2009, uh, seeing some of these old pagan temples that eventually were turned into Christian churches. And it's really neat to see how God... Uh, does that. And that would happen a few hundred years later once the Roman Empire, uh, once Constantine came on the scene. At any rate, the letters would have been copied pretty quickly by professional scribes so that those letters could be circulated among the Christians in other locations. 
Because this copy process was done fairly easily and quickly, the message itself got out fairly easily and quickly as well. As they were read in various homes and various gatherings, eventually disseminating in the synagogues and various places, certain themes uh, and certain teachings would pop up and they would develop even further um, the early Christian creeds and confessions. So they, you, you see some of these hymns like in, in Philippians and even Colossians, the Christ hymn we looked at back in chapter 1. These would have been fairly familiar um, ways of speaking with one another, um, speaking about Christ, developing these creeds and confessions, these early um, teachings about, about the gospel. And it wasn't, however, simply that Jesus is Lord. Um, everybody had been saying that at that point. Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Uh, that was sort of the message throughout the book of Acts. It wasn't like they stopped there and that's it. All, all we can say in our confession is Jesus is Lord. Rather, Jesus is Lord and then this is how we're supposed to act. There was more to it that developed. Jesus has been declared king. The gospel itself holds a promise of forgiveness and eternal life. And in the meantime, here's how we obey King Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. That was sort of their mantra. Now, remember back in chapter 1 that Paul, he commended the growth of the gospel in Colossae and in the world. This language of bearing fruit reminding us of, of the mission of God in the garden, the dominion mandate. The message of the kingdom of God had spread to the nations. It was going out far and wide, and it kept spreading to the nations. Uh, it, it was a fire that could not be quenched at that point. The Spirit had descended. The gospel went from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. It was going forth. No one could stop it. And when this seed is planted, untempered fruit is the natural result. When the gospel takes root, it bears fruit. It just always does. When the true undiluted gospel is proclaimed, people receive it by faith, then they bear fruit out into the world. But the question is, how does Christianity bear fruit in the world, though? How does it bear fruit? What, what, can, we, what can we say about it? In, in what ways can we stroll through the garden world, this garden orchard? We can pick from the trees and say, this looks like the gospel and I can taste it. In what ways can we, what exactly changes? Um, what sorts of things can we expect the gospel to produce in people and family and churches and nations and cultures once it takes when it, once it's planted when we start talking about like we did last week going to the armory of heaven in order to get what you need to live on earth we shouldn't be surprised when we have to actually start dealing with the earth we shouldn't be surprised uh, this phrase about Set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. Well, set your mind on things above so that you're equipped. It's like going to the armory and grabbing the weapons and then going to battle. So we have to remember that when we do that, we actually eventually have to get back to here and say, well, now we have to deal with the earth. <laughs> what about, in this case, what about slavery in the ancient Roman world? Uh, what about culture? What about education? What about politics and sexuality and the family? You know, suddenly you have to deal with things. Yeah, some Christians just say, well, that's over there. We don't deal with that. You know, we're, we're just, just me and Jesus, and we don't have to get involved, right? You know, we have to get involved in the abortion discussion. We don't have to get involved with the COVID tyranny. We don't have to get involved in all of this stuff, because that's out there. We're just kind of here. 
Well, that's not how we live in light of the gospel, and that's certainly not how the gospel takes root. So how exactly does the gospel bear fruit in these circumstances and in these social situations? Does the gospel of the kingdom tell you about your family and how you should live and how you should do business and how politics should be done? What, what is it that gets inculcated that wasn't there before? Now, my disputation tonight is this. Do you want to transform the world, Christian? Do you? Self-reflection for a second. Do you want to transform the world? Do you want to see atrocities ended, righteousness established? Okay, the answer Paul will give you, if that's the case, get your house in order. Get your house in order. Let's look at our text. It should be fairly obvious um, at this point that when Paul says that there's neither slave nor free, male or female, Jew or Greek, he says that on a couple of uh, occasions, it should be obvious, and, and since he begins this next section quite literally delineating between husbands and wives and fathers and children and masters and slaves, we can conclude, hopefully it's obvious, that he's quite comfortable keeping himself far away from any egalitarian spirit. Um, many folks will say, well, he said there's neither male nor female, so let's just, you know, those are, let's get rid of the binary system and just open the floodgates for androgyny and everything else. Many Christians are going for it, uh, but Paul's not. This, the, the androgynous, egalitarian, equalitarians today, they want to erode any sign of the image of God, which means that we can expect them to want to efface and undo masculinity, to, to undo femininity and the family structure. Yet Paul doesn't do that. Furthermore, remember that in the previous section, he urges us to be reminded of our identity in Christ. And when we do that, we can glorify God in what we think, what we say, what we do, and what we believe. With the peace of Christ ruling our hearts and the word of Christ dwelling in us richly, we can live a certain way. Things change when you become a Christian. Things are different. They, they, it's a palpable difference in the lives of people that are changed by Christ, especially if they've had a dramatic conversion experience. Um, I worked with a man. I was uh, doing social work in Philadelphia for a few years during seminary, and I remember uh, his name was Joseph, and he was a believer, and he told me his story just about how strung out he was on drugs and just how bad it was, and he had this wild, crazy dream about Jesus, and and like God rescued him that night. And, you know, I, I don't, I grew up in the cornfields of Michigan in a church. Like I didn't, I don't have that story, but it's amazing the drastic changes that can happen from a man who even like Paul, Saul, breathing threats, putting Christians to death, wanting more of them to die to squash this movement of Christianity. And Jesus changes his life. It's amazing the difference that can happen. So the gospel does change us. You, you live differently. You live a certain way. You don't, you don't get hit by a Peterbilt down I-95 and then you remain unchanged. <laughs> Nor do you remain unchanged after the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. So moving from all of that application, Paul deals with the household, which in the ancient world started with the head of the house, and then moved on to his wife, his children, his extended family that perhaps may have lived with them, mothers-in-law, fathers-in-law, uh, slaves, of course. You had contracted employees. You had benefactors, retainers. You had possibly political allies of some sort living with you. 
it was sort of a larger arrangement than just you, your wife, and your kids, which is kind of how things are today with us. There was a whole host of uh, personnel involved in the first century household. But now that we have Christ, what, what in the world do we do with these institutions? What do we do with the family? What do we do with work and education and all of these things? We, we apply the gospel. That's what Paul essentially says. That's what we do. And in this case, the Christian home should be, well, of course, Christian. The Christian home should be Christian. And it ought to be ethically informed by the gospel as it exists in the pagan world. Um, we're sort of, uh, people talk about this post-Christendom thing, and I never, I don't like the phrase post-Christendom because that implies that there was a time when Jesus was king and then he's not anymore. There's never a post-Christendom, there's just Christendom. And now it's sort of hobbling along in America because we've got some things to deal with and some things are wrong. That, that's how it is. But we're supposed to remember that we as gospel people with gospel families and gospel churches live in a world for the sake of the gospel. And the Bible isn't for what, you, it's not like you get the Bible in heaven, here's how you should live in heaven. The Bible's for here. The Bible's for here, so we need to go to it. Now, rather than calling for social revolution, which is what we're in the midst of today, Paul calls down the authority of King Jesus over the household with obligations, rules, and ethics that reflect this new status. So he begins here in verse 18 and 19, by speaking about the relationship that exists between a husband and a wife. Wives, your task in light of your death, burial, and resurrection with Christ, signified at baptism, is, he says, to be subject to your husbands. And here, Paul adds, as is fitting in the Lord. In Ephesians 5.22, Paul simply adds, as to the Lord. So the Lord informs the relationship that a wife is supposed to have to her husband. It's a gospel issue. Now, in the Roman world, a man had total unrestricted authority over his household. His wife, or wives in some cases, with many, many wives, um, children or the slaves, that household was entirely at his disposal. Um, he had the legal authority to do quite a bit, whereas some women didn't have as much legal authority. In fact, in Roman law, you had to have a certain number of kids before a wife could even go about and do business on her own. So... In some cases, wives had it even worse than slaves. And should he so desire, he could essentially end, end their lives or send them out. Uh, and, and abortion itself was rampant, um, and the Christians responded by rescuing children who were left out in the alleys and the garbage places, and they were the ones who heard a baby cry, go adopt the child and bring it into the house of the Lord. That's kind of how it worked. Um, but in the Roman world, it was kind of a, some similarities to today, but very different in some regard. Now, notice that Paul does not grant unrestricted authority to the husband. Rather, this submission of the wife to the husband rests on the latter phrase of verse 18, as is fitting in the Lord. Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of his wife. The covenant household, of course, does exist, and they exist in the Lord. There is clearly a pattern that Paul is appealing to here. It is God who made man, and it is God who orders man's relationships. Now, rather than being treated as slaves, again, in some cases worse, worse than slaves, women were actually elevated in the Lord. Women were elevated in the Lord. But how? Look at verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. 
So a wife must forego the desire to rule over her husband. The husband must forego the desire to resent her. He must love her sacrificially. And this agape love is simply putting their needs entirely in front of yours. He must love her. He must cherish her. He must provide a home for her to build and so on. And rather than treat her as disposable property, she is to be treated as the image of God that she truly is. Now, why does Scripture include these commands? Because it seems random. We've been talking about these high and lofty concepts about Christ the King, and He's the preeminent one, and He's the image of the invisible God, and all this stuff. And then we get here. Well, why does Scripture put commands like this? Well, the, the obvious answer is because we're tempted to not obey them. <laughs> why would Paul dare urge this between husbands and wives? Well, because there is a real temptation for a wife to want to rule her husband, and there is a real temptation for a husband to not rule or love and serve his wife. That's, that is a real temptation, so we have to have these things in order. Um, Bullinger writes, the husband is placed before the wife not so that he might exercise tyranny over her, but so that he might pay attention to her salvation, encourage her learning, protect her, nourish her, and treat her tenderly. Again, a different social status. Paul elevates the woman and says, actually, instead of disposable property, you should treat her tenderly. You should love her. You should seek her benefit at all times. You should be concerned about her health and her um, safety and so on. Now, the reason that Paul commands husbands to love their wives is because Rather than being a social contract given by the state, marriage is a covenantal institution which is given by God. So you, if God gives us a covenantal institution, well, we shouldn't be surprised that God has expectations. Here's, just like he put Adam and Eve in the garden, here's my expectations. Here's the covenantal family unit. I have expectations. So, to love the wife, husbands, listen carefully. We're going to come back to some of this, but husbands, to love the wife is to love his own flesh, for the two have become one, and to reflect the mystery of the great eschatological marriage between Christ and the church. That's Ephesians chapter 5. So, you are to love your wife as yourself, like it's your own flesh, because you are one flesh. And you are, husbands, to love your wife, because that is the example of Christ and the church. So marriage, in other words, is an echo of the gospel, and therefore it must look a certain way. Again, more on that later. Given that the Lord has promised to be faithful to a thousand generations, it makes sense here that children would have a place in this grand plan. What responsibility do you kids have? I'm talking right at you tonight a little bit, kiddos, all right? What responsibility do you have? Before the Lord. Well, children, look at verse 20. He says, Obey your parents in all things, for this is pleasing to the Lord. So, children are a part of the covenant family, and thus they have obligations too. All right? The, the family involves the children. Children, God expects things from you too. And He expects you to obey your parents, to honor them to want to be quick to hear what they have to say and not be so quick to respond to what they say. Now, the obedience of children, of course, is a means to maturation and growth. Uh, the, the early training of children is a means to our future, to, to their future um, 
maturation and faithfulness. And in Ephesians, you'll remember with our scripture reading earlier, Paul points out that the first commandment in the Ten Commandments with a promise is number five. Obey your parents so that you'll live long on the land. Now, when I teach my kids that, hey, obey your parents because I want you to live a long life. You might say, well, why? why would it, how does that have to relate? Well, my answer is usually, well, because I've done a lot of dumb things and I don't want you to do those things either. Because sometimes those dumb things don't treat us well. <laughs> but obey your parents so that you can live a long, faithful life in the Lord. That's the connection here. So the, the relationship between parents and the kids is a long obedience in the same direction. And that direction is faith and promise. So kids, you're getting a Christian education because God requires parents to give them a Christian education and not let them be discipled by the state. So you're, you're supposed to have a Christian education, but that education is meant to shape you so that when you're older, you will walk faithfully to, with the Lord. That you will not presume in a presumptuous negative way, but you will assume that the Lord in His promises to you is going to be faithful to you. Now, given the social problems in the Roman world, it would be a challenge for new converts to structure their family in a way that God commands. Okay, imagine the man with five wives and he comes to Christ and they all come to Christ. Well, what do you do? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a knot you have to figure out how to untangle. But in this case, men who formerly viewed themselves as lords and dictators, in a negative sense, um, able to dispose of wives and children willy-nilly, they might struggle with gentleness, for example. You know, when you have a chip on your shoulder, you have a chip on your shoulder. But when Christ takes the chip and destroys it, well, <laughs> you, you have a little bit to learn. And thus, in verse 21, Paul commands fathers not to exasperate your children. Don't exasperate your children, dads. That's, you're not supposed to do that. Men should be hard against the world and not against the family. Therefore, they should avoid behaviors attitudes, and discipline that rouses anger in the child. This is a difficult tension to navigate as your men, as we're raising our kids. We have to remember that if we start doing things that make them, makes them angry, either we're doing something wrong or they don't understand. And now we have a bigger problem to deal with. We don't want to exasperate our children. Uh, men who yell at their kids, stop yelling, <laughs> haven't visited the mirror lately. The purpose of training children is the cultivation of spiritual blessing and the development of mature Christian men and women, right? Kids, we're not raising kids. We're raising men and women. You're going to be a man and you're going to be a woman at some point in your life. You will grow into this and you will have to stand on your own two feet and follow the Lord. You're going to have to. So we have to cultivate these things, and we don't want dejected, hang-dong children, right? Hang-dog children where they're, they're just, woe is me, and, and I have no standing, and my parents don't like me, and all of this. We can't provoke them to anger in such a way. We need to show them what love looks like, show them what faithfulness looks like. So if you think yelling or taking your anger out on, on, on a child is discipline, then you're sadly mistaken. We must not provoke them to anger, which means discipline in parents is just as important as discipline in children. Now, Paul wants fathers to build up their children in the Lord. He doesn't want them to de demoralize them or discourage them in any way. Children need discipline and instruction, but the good parent knows that he or she does too. We all know. Parents, your kids should see your repentance. 
they should see the fruit of the gospel in your life too. Now, part of this issue here is that overcorrecting one's child is just as much of a problem as not correcting one's child. So you can, the two ditches, of course, of, well, we're not just, we're not going to, we're just going to let them do whatever they want, or we're going to overcorrect in such a way that demoralizes them and exasperates them. So those are two problems. But fathers who exasperate their children are not nurturing them in the Lord, but instead causing self-hatred or anxiety in the child. And this is why Paul says not to do this, so that they will not lose heart. And he says it right in the text. That we don't, fathers, don't exasperate your children so that they don't lose heart. Meaning that they have a heart that we are cultivating and you can utterly destroy. Think about it, right? We can all hear a million encouraging words, right? But one critique can really mess with us. It's the same thing for kids. You can, you can offer a million compliments and encouragement to your child and then one thing you've done wrong could be very disastrous and very hurtful so we have to paul says as part of the family we have to make sure we navigate this in a way that reflects the gospel now the final piece to the social order puzzle pertains to slaves and masters now slavery in the ancient world is not to be considered like the chattel slavery of the united states well in england and for that matter the western world wasn't exactly the same thing. In the first century, the job market wasn't as strong as it is today, which even today is really questionable. But one could be born into slavery. You could simply have your parents were slaves and then you were born into slavery. You could, you could be just inherit that. One could have lost all of his money and possessions and sell himself into slavery in order to make money and have a life. Um, and oftentimes in these situations, you could say, hey, I'm, I'm broke, I'm destitute, I have a wife and two kids, uh, I'll work on your farm, we'll all work on your farm, could you provide for us in some fashion? Sure, I'll feed you, clothe you, and you work for me. And that was a slave-master relationship in the ancient world. Um, one could also, according to biblical law, be forced into slavery because of restitution, so you owed money, maybe you, couldn't, maybe you stole a bunch of money and you spent it all and you got caught and a judge said, you need to pay it back. I can't pay it back. What do you do? You go work and you have to work it. Uh, it's sort of like washing the dishes at the restaurant because you couldn't pay for the meal. Kind of like that. Now it's important to realize that rather than calling for social revolution and anarchy, Paul calls for personal sanctification in these spheres. Slaves and workers and employees should be obedient. We should exhibit hard work, even when people aren't watching, because ultimately the Lord is watching. That's verse 22. Um, honor and recognition for integrity. It may never come from a mere mortal, but it does come from the throne of heaven. We, all, and, all of, and, and that translates today, you're at your job, working your job. You need to work it like you're working for the Lord because you are working for the Lord. So do a good job. Go over and above. Don't be the kind of employee that's shaving corners and, and doing all of these things, trying to cook the books, whatever. Don't do that. Be the best employee that's there. The one that's honest, full of integrity, that never cheats, never steals, never lies. That is the principle here. So whatever work is done, he says, do it because you're working for the Lord. That's verse 23. God grants the inheritance, therefore, in verse 24, he says, serve the Lord Christ. I love that command. The LSB gets this right. Serve the Lord 
Christ. That is the mantra. He is the ultimate master whom we all serve. Now, but what happens if a slave does something wrong or a master does something wrong? Verse 25, he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. Anybody had a job where you did something, uh, you were working with people that are corrupt and all the government employees raised their hand? <laughs> yeah, everybody's corrupt and I'm trying to hold on tight. Those are situations, and they're doing things wrong, but you have a responsibility to know that God's the one that will put that to right. And God is impartial, and he judges accordingly. He's not a respecter of persons. But in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul, he admonishes the masters next. He says, show to your slaves what is right and fair, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So if you're an employee or a boss, or in this case, the slave-master dynamic of the Roman world, both of them have a calling to serve the Lord Christ. One may be a servant of another man, yet he is the servant of the Most High. One may be a master of another man, but yet Christ is his master. No man has unending authority. No civil leader, no husband, no father, no, no employee, master, you know, situation, business owner. Nobody has ultimate authority. Masters must be good fathers to their slaves, treating them prudentially and justly. And other men made in the image of God, they're not property to be disposed of. That is the Roman culture view. But both are image bearers who belong to Christ. And this is how social institutions are undone. By the way, this plan, this plan here, these household rules, that is how cultures are won. That is how cultures are won. So how shall we then live? I want, to, I want to consider the fact, I want us to consider the fact that what we are dealing with here are covenantal realities, not ontic realities. In other words, when a man or woman or child comes to Christ, he or she does not cease to be a man or a woman or a child. Those identity markers are built in. You, you can't, despite our obsession in these days, trying to eradicate male and female, despite that, when, when someone comes to Christ, that's who they are. He meets them right where they're at, not where he wish, wishes them to be. In fact, one could argue that they finally become what it is God has called them to be. When you come to Christ, yes, you are a man who's repented and believed, but now you're the man you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be fully made in the image of God and not have a cracked version of the image of God because of sin. You're supposed to be restore, restored. So when these men and women come together and they form marriages and they form families and they exercise themselves in economic or political spheres, the only way to do it in a way that honors the Lord is to do it in a way that honors the Lord. And how do we honor the Lord? Well, we go back to the covenant. We do what He commands from hearts that have been made new. It's a very simple process. The covenant is a guiding directive from heaven. It is the ordering principle that informs the world and everything in the world. And obedience to it is what God requires. And this is why we have covenant families consisting of covenant marriages and covenant children along with covenantal relationships and arrangements in the world. Everything is covenantal. Nothing is neutral. That's what Christianity is. Everything is a covenantal issue as God the Creator relates to the creation. We're going to dive really deep into that in the Genesis series, Lord willing. 
But that ordering and that structure of the world has a covenantal dimension to it that is inescapable. Nothing is neutral. It either lines up with God or it doesn't. Everything is covenantal. Nothing is neutral. And we, we do this. We, we establish covenantal families and we have churches who are brought into the covenant, the people of God brought into the covenant by Christ and His blood. We do all of this stuff so we can carry out the great commission and the dominion mandate by the grace of God. Covenant is how God manages history and it's how God blesses His people. And you would be shocked to know how many churches today just don't ever talk about covenant. They don't talk about it. It's like it's not even a paradigm. And with the Obergefell decision, um, you have a situation where the covenant marriage, which is what it is, marriage is by definition covenantal, you have it ripped out of the covenantal grip of God and attempted to make it some sort of social arrangement with the state. And thus all the devil can do is try to mimic God's covenants. So it's how man, God manages history. It's how God blesses His people. That's the covenant. Now the challenge before us lies in the fact that the world is in such disarray that it does not know which end is up. And, and I don't want to be a Debbie Downer with you kiddos here tonight, but you're in a world that just doesn't know which way is up. It's very confused. And and parents, we need to make sure we help our kids understand that that's a, ju a judicial stupor that God is judging us. And that's why people don't know which end is up. They don't understand. Like, the next thing to go is probably math, right? Two plus two is four. Well, that's your opinion, bro. You know, they're going to start changing everything. But our culture is revolting against a mature covenantalism. That's what's actually happening. Um, No-fault divorce along with sexual promiscuity and fornication outside the covenant is what is tearing the family covenant apart. And many Christians have allowed that to go on, uh, and it's contributed to the chaos as well. You add government indoctrination for the kids, you add a dash of pietism in the church, and you have America right now. That's the recipe, that's the cake we've baked. <laughs> no, it doesn't taste great either, right? Now, when the direction of men's hearts are bent on anti-covenantalism, society begins to go its own way, and God pours out His wrath accordingly. And it was uh, Groen van Prinsterer, uh, he, was the, uh, he was writing on the heels of the French Revolution. He was a Dutch Reformed guy. He said that revolution is unbelief applied to politics. Revolution is unbelief applied to politics. But we can broaden that out by saying that when unbelief, like an anti-covenantal unbelief, we reject God, we're doing our own thing. Unbelief, when it's applied to every nook and cranny of culture, we get social revolution. The destruction of the covenant family is, is only possible because men are angry with God. They hate the family because they hate the Lord of glory. Um, if they can't exterminate the child somewhere along the way in utero, then we'll toss them into a school that will tell them that they're just evolved pond scum, and then they wonder why kids act up. And then they put them on drugs that are concocted in factories, and then you see the cycle. They hate the family today because they hate God. That's the order. God first, then man. Now, to the contrary, 
Christianity's revolution is one of transformation starting in the heart. Think of it in this way. Unbelief, when captured in the hearts of men who hate God, it spurs on a revolutionary fervor in terms of power, um, degradation, selfishness. Just think of the French Revolution that gave way. You had the Industrial Revolution, which for better or for worse, I mean, it had some pluses, but some negatives too. Um, And then you have the rise of Marx and Engels, the Communist Manifesto. Then you have the rise of all of these revolutionary communist regimes like Stalin and Lenin and Pol Pot and Mao, and you have a disaster of a 20th century. Unbelief gave way to massive amounts of, of murder and genocidal activity by despots who hate God. But Christianity changes hearts. Christianity is a theology applied by the Spirit that restores the image of God, and from there it heals families, and from there it heals cultures. So Christianity does have a revolutionary fervor, but unlike the humanist version with bloodlust and a seething resentment for order, Christianity's revolution is humble. It's humble. It is meek. It is patient. And it's forbearing. The complete opposite of what we saw in the French Revolution. Despite this clearly different set of beliefs about revolution, we can learn from this text that Paul's belief about revolution is rooted in both creational and scriptural ethics and norms. Creational uh, truth about who men and women are and scriptural norms as well. So men, (coughs) men are supposed to function a certain way and women are supposed to function a certain way. Not rocket scientists, ro- rocket science here. That these we may call gender vocations. And together, when brought into the covenant of marriage, they of course are to reflect the Lord. Rather than abdicating the call to sacrificial responsibility, husbands, you are called to follow, follow the Lord's footsteps by being godly heads who love their wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up. Being a godly husband looks being a lot like Jesus. Jesus takes responsibility for everything that goes on in his home. Husbands, you must take responsibility for everything that goes on in your home. And even if it isn't your fault, which sin of ours was not our fault, but it was put on Christ still? None, right? None of those sins were his fault. All of them were ours. You must take responsibility. It's still... Even if it's your wife's sin, it's still your responsibility. Uh, That's leadership, by the way. Leadership. That is sacrificial responsibility. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He took the sin of the world on Himself. None of it was His. Husbands, you are to be shepherding providers for your family, working hard with integrity. The husband is to remain monogamous, having eyes only for his wife, Job 31.1. Work hard, fill the fridge, fill the gas tank, disciple, not exasperate your kids, and make sure your wife's sexual needs go above and beyond yours. You are a Lord protector, a watchman on the wall, so be very hard against the world, but not your family. Your authority, like your wife's authority, because she has authority too, your authority is on a covenantal leash. So see to it that you deserve submission and obedience. 
not that you are demanding it. Repent of excuse-making. Men, let's repent of excuse-making. Repent of any harsh bitterness against your wife. And, you know, cherry on top here, repent of being a numbskull. It's a good place to start. And, ah, we'll keep going. And do not be lazy, a lazy man, folding on your hands. We're to work hard, to serve well, to give everything. John Trapp exhorts us men, He saith not rule over them, subdue them if they will not submit, but love them, and so win them to your will. Make their yoke as easy as may be, for they stand on even ground with you as yoke fellows, though they draw on the left side. That's a beautiful covenant marriage. Working together. He, Trapp uses the analogy of oxen working together. Don't demand submission. Be worthy of it. Wives, it's your turn. <laughs> Wives are, be, are to be respectful towards their husbands, even if they do not deserve it, and oftentimes they do not deserve it. Don't be resentful. Uh, and demanding towards your husbands. Um, Don't be accusatory like Job's wife. Remember what she said. Curse God and die. Really great advice. (laughs) Job's hanging on, scraping boils with pot shirts on, you know, and she walks up with her gift of encouragement. We should curse God. You should curse God and die. This is all your fault. So don't be like Job's wife, or for that matter, Job's friends. Being caught up in emotion in the heat of the moment rather than being anchored in truth. Remember, you too, wives, you are serving the Lord Jesus when you submit to your husband. Just as, this is one writer, just as, one, just as men submit to Christ who showed them how to submit, so women are to submit to Christian husbands who show them how to submit. Submission in, in, is easy in a marriage when a man is truly loving sacrificially. It's very easy. I don't know a woman who would not say that. Wives, see to it that you give yourselves physically to your husbands, which is a gift God has given in marriage in order to protect the marriage. Marriage is a dance. It's not a math formula. Encourage your husbands, as it will no doubt spur them on. Uh, One writer said, Many women want their husbands to look like they are leading, but they do not want them to actually lead. Don't be that way. Rather, adorn yourself with humility and a peaceable, quiet spirit. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. Proverbs 14, 1 says it this way, The wise woman builds her house, but the woman of folly tears it down with her own hands. Wives, you're supposed to build the home. The men are supposed to give you the, the tools. You build the home. It's your job to decorate it, look at, look, make sure it looks nice. Men, if this happens in my home, but... If she wants you to hang something on the wall, you do it with all the love and sacrificial responsibility that comes with it, even if you're not really great at it, although I've learned over the years. I tend to hang things too tall. I don't know why, but... (laughs) Paul says for husbands to love their wives because women run on love. Wives should respect their husbands because their husbands run on respect. Be faithful, ladies, to your husbands, Speak well of your husbands. Build your homes with grace and glory and be busy with your marriages and your children, not your social media accounts in the world. Love from husbands ought to descend on the wife. Duty, reverence, and submission ought to ascend in response. 
And that's the pattern of Christ in the church, by the way, which is exactly what marriage is supposed to reflect. It's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 in more detail. That's what it's supposed to to reflect. Husbands, would you be like Christ? Then learn this. Headship involves a heart fixated on sacrificial action, which is manifested in bloodstained hands. That's what Jesus did. Wives, would you picture the church then exercise a responsible freedom to steward the home, occupying and multiplying and helping the husband carry forth his call to work and to keep. Dysfunctional views of marriage, gender, relationships, and so forth, you should know that they're all heretical views of God and they are legion. Let me explain. For example, Arianism, an early heresy in the church, Arius denied the divinity of Christ which taught that Jesus had no equality with God. Thus, in a marriage, if men and women aren't considered equal image bearers before Christ, tyranny will abound. That's the heresy of Arianism. In the heresy of modalism, there is no distinction between the persons of the Godhead. Thus, in a marriage, if, women, if men and women don't consider their creational and gender vocations, disobedience and dysfunction will abound. Think of sexual distortions in our day and age. They try and reflect false gods. Two fathers, two mothers. What do we say in response? Are there two Christs? Are there two churches? These are all Trinitarian heresies that do not reflect Christ and the church. There is no equal ultimacy in this conception of marriage where it can be whatever you want it to be. And that's because there is no perichoresis. That is, there is no uh, equal ultimacy. There's no unity and diversity. There's just this reduction into Unitarianism, right? The Unitarians say, hey, you know, we all believe in God. Which God? Doesn't matter. It's just God. And the Christian says, yeah, it matters. It's a flattening out, and thus it's a dissolution of the Trinity. Now, in Christian marriages, there should be mutual indwelling with one another. Um, Husbands and wives, a mutual indwelling. There's a unity that's there, and yet there's still a diversity, like the mutual indwelling and like the unity and diversity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, there is Trinitarian glory in a marriage where you are covenantally one, and you experience the fruit of that oneness and in, in all sorts of ways, of course, but there's also a, a diversity in there. Two different people unified by covenant. Autonomy, independence, and sexual dysfunctions like homosexuality, they are all high-handed Trinitarian heresies. They don't communicate the truth about God. That's why, unfortunately, Matt, Matt Walsh's, if you saw his interview with Joe Rogan, it was a very difficult thing to watch, but he's trying to defend traditional marriage, but he's trying to defend marriage without mentioning God. Marriage only exists because of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But those fake marriages, they're the fake systems, the fake love anybody you want sort of thing, get married to your cat if you like, that sort of nonsense, it doesn't communicate truth about God. So your marriage and your home is supposed to communicate truth to the world. It's supposed to, which is why Paul wants healthy covenantal marriages producing healthy covenant families. It communicates truth. It's also why slaves and servants are supposed to be good slaves and servants, and so are the masters. We must not pretend that there are some areas of life that are off limits for the gospel. 
Now, there is freedom in the gospel, but it's a responsible freedom. Freedom, isn't, freedom is only to be conceived in terms of ethics and wisdom. Think about it this way. Can, can you, without going to jail, at least right away, can you drive with your eyes closed? Sure, you can, right? Not, like, it's not like they have radar detectors for making sure your eyes are open. Okay, you can. You're free to do that. Should you do that? No way. I don't know about you, but I didn't know. I'm not trying to belittle you, but if you close your eyes, you can't see. <laughs> You're free to do it, but should you do it? No, you shouldn't. And why? Because there are ramifications, right? So freedom isn't self-existent willpower. That's what Aristotle believed. It's freedom is deliverance from the power of sin and being filled with the Spirit so that you have wisdom and discretion. So what we really need is a grace, the grace of God to permeate and fill and penetrate everything. We want parents to love Christ and teach their kids to love Christ. And parenting isn't strong-arming your child into the mold of the Christian faith. It's cultivating the heart so that they love the faith. It's less about ramming a formula into their head and more about pulling weeds and tilling the soil of a child's heart. We want them to love the standard, not just know what it is. And this requires us to demonstrate that love. Let me end with this note here. Christian households toppled despots because they worship King Jesus. We worship King Jesus. We follow Him. We order our lives in accordance to His will. And, and that's what topples nations and that's what changes cultures. Just think math for a second. If we just outnumber everyone with the kids we have, baptizing them, bringing to the table, teaching them the Christian worldview, give us 50 years and it'll be over. That's all, it, I mean, just by doing those basic things, it's done. We'll have 8 billion Christians on the earth in no time. So when a man and a woman and a child is brought into this covenant, they are brought to a king, and he's a good king. He's a priest, no doubt, and he atones for our sins. He forgives them completely. He's a prophet, absolutely, instructing us by the work of the Holy Spirit. And Christ is our king, meaning that he orders our lives and manages our affairs for the advancement of the kingdom. And having a strong covenantal family is part of it. And it is a joy to heartily serve this king. So let us do it together for His glory. After all, the gospel doesn't obliterate, it orders. It does not dissolve us, it establishes us. Remember, Christ is all and He is in all. Father, we gather here in praise of Your Word. We thank You for what You have given to us through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Thank You that You have preserved Your Word down through the ages that we could know precisely who You are, um, even if parts of You is a mystery as we don't still fully comprehend all of it, but we know what we need to know from Your Word, and we thank You for it. Help us, Father, by Your Spirit, to have strong covenant families with godly marriages and uh, covenantal families that exist uh, for, for Your glory. Uh, we pray, Lord, as we celebrate communion and baptism shortly, we ask Your blessing, not that we deserve it, but that You are so kind to give it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.